Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 60 of the podcast. Now, some of you will know that I've been saying this episode is one of the most important I've ever produced for the podcast. And that's because this episode tackles probably the most important social and cultural issue that writers and other artists face today. And that is, how do we properly reflect and represent the diversity of our world, our particular nation, our local area in our work? Now, if you follow the conversations that occur amongst writers, publishers and readers, you'll be aware that this debate about diversity in literature has been bubbling away for some years now. And that debate manifests itself in questions like how are people of different racial, ethnic and gender backgrounds being presented and represented in our work as writers or in what we read? Now, I confess that as a middle-aged white man, I used to find this debate about the dominant culture in the arts made me quite nervous. I found it confusing and sometimes threatening. And I was wary of dealing with this bias in the arts, especially when it was my racial group, my gender, people like me, who seemed to be that dominant group. And knowing this, I realised that I had a choice. I could either ignore the issue and pretend it wasn't there, or I could face it and deal with it. I realised that if I did learn anything useful or interesting around this issue, then I wanted to share it as I share other things that I find out with the Creative Writers Toolbelt community. And I also realised that if I was going to do this thing with any kind of integrity, I needed to hear the voices and opinions of people who were not like me, who were the other from my point of view. And so the idea behind this episode of the Creative Writers Toolbelt was born. Now, I think I've got a great conversation to share with you. And for that conversation, I was joined by two guests the writer and journalist Nisi Shaw, and the composer, performer and writer Daniel Jose Older. And I'll introduce them both in a moment, but I can tell you that they both have interesting and wise things to say on this subject. I certainly learned a lot and I hope you do too. And if this subject makes you nervous or confused or angry, or if you aren't sure just what the debate is about, then this conversation is for you. And I'd encourage you to listen to what Nisi and Daniel have to say. And the good news is that whoever we are and whatever our background, we can engage with this issue and we can deal with it well. It is a challenge, but it's a challenge that we can all rise to. So here's the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to episode 60 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Today I want to talk about the issue of writing the other. That is the challenge of writing a character who's not like me, the author. And, and that unlikeness might be something in terms of race, or it might be culture, gender, ability, class sexual orientation, a whole range of things. It's a critical subject and I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by my guests Nisi Shaw and Daniel Jose Older. And Nisi is an African-American writer and journalist and she's the co-author with Cynthia Ward of Writing the Other, Bridging Cultural Differences for Successful Fiction and she's a graduate of the Clarion West Writers Workshop and her short stories have appeared in Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, The Infinite Matrix, Strange Horizons, Semiotext, and numerous other magazines and anthologies. And she's been nominated for numerous awards, and in 2009, she won the James Tiptree Jr. Award for her short fiction collection, Filter House. She's also a founder of the Carl Brandon Society, whose mission is to increase racial and ethnic diversity in the production of an audience for speculative fiction. So welcome, Nisi. Glad to be here. And I'm also joined by 
Daniel. He's a writer, editor, and composer. He's the author of the Bone Street Rumba series, the first of which, Half Resurrection Blues, was published in 2015. Publishers Weekly hailed him as, and I quote, a rising star of the genre. And after publication of his debut ghost noir collection, Salsa Nocturna, he's also published a YA novel, Shadow Shaper, which was a New York Times notable book of the year and nominated for the Kirkus Prize and the Andre Norton Award. He co-edited the anthology Long Hidden, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History, and guest edited the music issue, very appropriate, I think, of Crossed Genres. His short stories and essays have appeared in Tor.com, Salon, BuzzFeed, and New Haven Review, Pank, Apex, and Strange Horizons. And the anthologies Subversion and Mothership, Tales of Afrofuturism and Beyond. And when he's being a musician rather than a writer, Daniel's band Ghost Star gigs regularly around New York. So welcome, Daniel, as well. Thank you so much. Very happy um, to be here. I want to start by just asking you guys if you could define writing the other. I had a bit of a sort of half-cock go at it just now, but um, can you tell me what you uh, think of when people talk about writing the other? Writing the other to me is this idea of writing about someone who is different from you in ways that are socially determined as important. Right. In other words, we're always writing about people who are different than ourselves, but when we write about people who are different from ourselves in certain ways, then those are collected under the, the name the other, the label the other. That's, that's how I would define it. What about you, Daniel? No, I totally agree with that. I think that's a really good way to formulate it. And essentially, the only piece I would add is just that it, it, it's really a question of writing about power and power differentials, and that's really what matters in the equation. Because, like Nisha said, there's always going to be differences between characters, but what, what matters in the differences between us as human beings is how culture and power have formulated you know, our standing mm -hmm. in society in a lot of different ways. So the the crux of the matter when we're talking about writing the other and when we're talking about writing the self really is how do we understand the dynamic of power as it functions within us and outside of us. And the truth of that is that it's all over, you know, both character development and narrative, you know, plot development. Um, so it's not something you can ever ignore. So I really feel like when we're talking about writing the other, we're really just trying to get stories to be better, more honest and more in-depth about how we conceptualize power. I just wanted to sort of get some definitions out in terms of who we are. Then, for me, I'm a white, heterosexual, male, 50. Those aren't necessarily the most you know, the things that I think of myself as defining me, absolutely. Right. There's other things, but I, th I think it'd be good just to sort of say, this is, this is where I'm at, this is who I am. How about you guys? Yeah, and I think that's it. I'll tell you mine in a second, but I think that is an important place to start because I think that that piece actually gets left out of the conversation a lot because we focus mm -hmm. so much on what it means to write the other. And I often tell students when they ask that question, you know, like, can you write you first? <laughs> and what does that mean? Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm Latino and Jewish, uh, mixed culture and heritage, um, 36, and, and cis, male and straight and able-bodied. Um, and mm -hmm. non-black Latino and from Boston originally, not even Brooklyn. And I am uh, African-American, female, 60 years old. I have some invisible disabilities going for me, mm -hmm. as in uh, glaucoma, fibromyalgia. I'm obese. I'm cis. I'm bisexual. 
I practice a non-dominant religion, which actually Daniel and I share. We're co-religionists. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? For for me, it's called Ifa. It's hmm. I'm not sure. Um, is it Santeria? Is that what you would say, Daniel? I kind of switch back and forth between Santeria and Lukumi. Um, yeah. But yeah, we're all in the same family. Basically, it's uh, African and and specifically West African uh, descended traditions. Mm -hmm. Okay, there are terms that are used in this debate, and I think some people will know what they are. Other people, they'll be new to them. Sure. So uh, there's uh, not not a lot of them, but just maybe two or three of those terms. It would be useful to get your definitions of them. So one of the things, in fact, just picking up on on the conversation that we've had, I think somebody mentioned sort of. CIS and CIS normative was something that I'd, I'd seen. I wonder if one of you guys could just talk a little bit around that. What does that, if people hear that in conversation, what does it mean? I don't know the root of the word, which I wish I did because um, I'm pretty sure it's really interesting and I usually look up roots, but I haven't done I think I did once and I forgot. But it, it essentially, uh, the way I understand it, it means not transgender, uh, meaning that okay. the sexual organs that you were born with is uh, correspond to the gender that you identify with. I, right. I think that's a right way to say it, although I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm not totally sure. Okay. Uh, but I know that it means not trans. Yeah, it means that you are emotionally the same as whatever mm. gender you were assigned at birth. And right. uh, my understanding is that it it's derived from a chemical term. Hmm. Chemistry, oh, okay. believe it or not. And, and I think I would say that the, the idea of cis-normativity is certainly about subscribing to the just to the basic uh, binary of, of gender, the idea that gender is a binary, um, you know, which it isn't really, but um, cis-normative thinking uh, kind of applies to that and, and essentializes, you know, male as the sexual male, having sexual male organs and female and, and that, when in reality there are many different genders. And hmm. even to say it like that, I think, kind of simplifies it. Okay. The other term that I'm really interested to hear you guys define is person of color, POC. Oh, it's a really uh, U.S.-centered one, is, in my experience. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you going to say more? Uh, no, you are. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a complicated... I mean, definitions are always complicated, especially yeah. if you get into race and definitions. It's so easy to just, um, I mean, I see people arguing about, like, like what Latino is, for example, right? And mm. the, the truth is that, uh, which is also a very U.S.-centric um, identity, and, you know, Latino is an identity that has been very strategically created, you know, and defined in different ways depending on, for the most part, white supremacist ideas of what, you know, was needed given particular census numbers. Um, and then at a certain point kind of taken over by Latinos and defined by ourselves in different ways. So there's all kinds of battlegrounds around who is what and who calls what what and all these other things. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think in the most simplest and straightforward way, I, I conceive of people of color as people who are not white to any degree at all. You could take someone like myself who has, most of us, I think, have whiteness in us to some degree, or a lot of us do. But when you have that non-white element, it, because of the way that white supremacy functions in an exclusionary hmm. way, and has always functioned, it tends to cancel out the white element and take you for, you know, whatever of color identity, you know, you have that pertains mm -hmm. to you. And at a certain point, you just have to kind of leave it to people to define themselves. Yeah. And there's definitely, I know within Native communities, there's a lot of discussion about whether they consider themselves people of color or not. 
I know uh, Roma people have that conversation. There's a lot of different ways to conceptualize it. Mm. Did you want to add to that, Nisi, at all? Did you want to say anything? Uh, just that I've heard a, as a compliment to that, uh, people of pallor. <laughs> okay. I've never heard that one. That's okay. funny. <laughs> yeah. I think it's tough to try and work with these things sometimes. That's that's yes. my impression is. Um, assuming that, that, that the people involved in the debate are sincere, then actually it, they discover that it's hard work engaging with this stuff and engaging it with it with integrity. But um, yes, it it's good to it's good to it's good to get some of those those definitions out. So yeah. bringing the conversation now to, into the context of writing. Let's say I'm writing the other, whoever the other is. What is my main objective? Do you think? I would say you're trying for verisimilitude. You're trying to make a real character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think on the one level it's the same as any character. You know, you're mm -hmm. always just trying to make a human. I mean, the things that matter about characters and storytelling are that there's a realness to them, that they feel mm -hmm. like a human, even if they're a dragon, that they feel that there's, there's human qualities to them um, and that they want something so that that can propel the story forward and whatever it needs to do. But the... the where it gets complicated, I think, when we're talking about the other, again, is power. And so mm -hmm. it's about understanding the history and, first of all, that there is a history of it being done wrong in general as far as writing the other goes. And that, you know, knowing how it's done wrong and then not simply subverting that and just doing the opposite of it, which is very easy to do and still plays mm -hmm. within that sort of dominant simplistic narrative and doesn't generally get you to a fully human or realized character, but... Mm -hmm. You know, imbuing them with humanity in the same way you would any other character, in a in a way where you're conscious and intentional about not walking mm -hmm. in the footsteps of the old, you know, racist and sexist bullshit that yeah. we come from. So it's kind of about doing it on the one hand, just creating a real character and doing all that work that you would normally do with any character, and on the other hand, being very conscious of the fact that you know you are walking in a particular history in a particular mm -hmm. footsteps, and that you have as a person, you know, of some form of privilege or another certain uh, blinders that will make it harder for you to understand, first and foremost, where you lie in that situation and how you function within it as a writer or as, you know, whoever your character who is more like you would be, and then second of all, what that other person is seeing. Because hmm. privilege is very good for willful ignorance, you know what I mean? Like the first rule... <laughs> The first rule of the privilege club is like, don't talk about privilege, you know, like, it's very real. So I think that's the first pitfall that we see in writers when they're trying to write people who are them is, you know, we, we protect ourselves as people of privilege very okay. often. I want to say that I teach online classes that are related to writing the other, and I always ask the students, what, you know, what are you trying to get out of this? Why are you taking this class? Mm. Nine times out of ten, what they're saying is that they want to represent the reality of their world and that their uh, world is multiplex, that it is complex, that it is not just, uh, you mm. know, monolithic. So they want to be true to a character and they also want to be true to the world. So I'm the kind of middle-aged white guy, I'm looking at all this, and I don't think I'm even going to try because it is so complicated and so overwhelming, and I'm going to just hide away from it. I'm not going to engage with it. Now, that's a, that to me feels like a bad idea. But why is is it bad to do that? Is it bad just to hide away, or what do you think I about think that? I think so. 
I think it's bad because that it's going to come get you anyway, wherever you hide. <laughs> you will sell your work and someone will say, well, you know, there's nothing real in here. Why should I read this? And why should I buy this? And why should I pay you money for it? So I would say that, yes, it is a bad idea because it is impossible to carry out. Okay. That's my view. Daniel, you got an opinion on this one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely... There's so many layers to that question, and I think it's a really good question, and I think we're always kind of struggling with that in different ways. I totally agree with Nisi. You can't not do it. Like, you're always going to be right in the other one way or the other. It might not be in the way that, you know, you at first conceptualize the other, but I know I, I really doubt that you're going to – there's very few books with only straight white men, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they are, they're very boring <laughs> books, most of them. Like, it's a terrible <laughs> idea to write a book with that. Um, but even if it's just um, white men and white women, if you're ignoring the power differentials between them, you're failing on some level as a writer, mm -hmm. and that's just mm -hmm. going to be true in your writing, and people are going to see that. And you know, you might still be a bestseller and regarded as a classic because publishing is like that, and it's fine, and if that's your goal, then congratulations. But if you're trying to write a good book and say something true, then you're going to have to look at power and mm -hmm. have uncomfortable conversations. And I would argue that Literature is really here to make us have those uncomfortable conversations, and it has done it in varying degree of success, you know, throughout history, but in a very particular way because it's a very white industry. So there's a particular kind of discomfort that it's cool to be having, mm. which is, you know, think about <laughs> adolescence or the discomfort of being a white male or whatever, and then there's really, really uncomfortable stuff, which is talking about race and talking about power, and that's been a lot more touchy as far as, like, publishing being able to mm. deal with it. So, A, you can't avoid it. B, I do think that there's, it's very valid to say, and I've said this, you know, I'm not ready to write that character yet because I'm not writer enough to deal with a character that's different from me in that way. Okay. But are you saying it as a shutdown mechanism because someone challenged you on it because you don't have any of those characters in your books and you're like, well, I just can't do that. Um, and then that's how you stay for your entire career. You know, no. then you're just... You're just playing yourself. Then you're, yeah. you're, you know, you're kind of lying, I think, and you're just allowing yourself to fall into like a certain amount of complacency. Or are yeah. you saying that and then saying, you know, I'm going to try to figure this out so that I can do better? Because a lot of, you know, we have a lot of books to write in our careers, I would hope, and there's a lot of room to figure stuff out and, mm -hmm. and get there and, and put the work in. Um, but are you putting the work in, you know? And sometimes the work is internal work, and I think that gets a little yeah. bit yeah. erased but like it is it's research but it's also soul work and mm -hmm. it's also you know personal work and it's talking to friends and it's being out in the world and being a part of things it's not all going to be in a book so you know I think yeah. all those things are at play and you know and they matter yeah it seems, it seems to me it is about being brave and not giving up on the integrity and the truth of what you're trying to do Right. Yeah, I, I, to take your point, you could probably step away from writing certain characters for good reasons, but if you do it for bad reasons, then you know you, you, you've lost some degree of authenticity. I think yes. reasons come through too. We we can generally we can feel your reasons in the writing, and you can't just sort of be like, you know what, I don't care what they say to me, I'm gonna just write it the way I know it. And you can do that, but we're gonna see that it's gonna be very clear. I would like to add to um, the idea of research. You know, there's the mm. external research, as in interacting with this culture, and there's the internal research, as right. in I wrote this and I looked at it the next day and it really made me wince. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's real. And, and then there's the research of, and I kind of said this already, but just 
you know, having for myself, I'll, I'll talk about myself, but uh, just also a lot of people I know going through the process, the personal process of understanding your own privilege and really reconciling with that. Yes. It's not uh, it's not something that can be summarized with the word research, right? It is very much a soul searching process and it's painful. Mm -hmm. I often equate it with the five stages of grieving, you know, like the same, okay. same way, like you go through denial. You go through bargaining and you go through acceptance. <laughs> all those things, like, you know, you, and you're driving yourself nuts. And it can take 10 years and 20 years to go through all those different seasons. Mm -hmm. And then you slip back and suddenly you're in denial again. And that's real. You know, and like, first of all, that's great fodder for literature. That's a good conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Having, but very few books really talk about the experience of being white or being a cis male or all that stuff for as many white cis males that are writing books. There's a lot more by them about being something else that they're not. So, you know, I think that level really matters. And and so many people that I know have had that particular struggle on different in different levels of identity. And it's like, why aren't we talking about it in the books? Uh, very few really do. If you if you want to sort of do some not just some desk research, not just looking at books, but if you, let's say I want to write a character, I feel in, in my story there needs to be a character who is somebody from the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria, let's say, mm -hmm. and Maybe maybe I know one person or two, right? And I want to talk to that person to actually begin to understand how it is for them, what's important to them, how how life is from their perspective. So I want to talk to them, but I don't want to do it in a deceitful way. I don't want to kind of pretend, is it as it were, to be friends with them and just pump them for information. Right. It's I want I want it to be an honest conversation, and I want them to understand how that would work. So, Nissi, I want to ask you this one first. How do you approach somebody who is the other with integrity, if you can, to say, how is it for you? I need to, I want to understand how it is. Uh, with respect uh, for their expertise, for their knowledge. Yeah. You're right that you don't want to just pretend because um, mm. when I was little, there was this thing called National Brotherhood Week, sort of like uh, one week of, of uh, getting invitations to lunch where people would, yeah, they would be asking me all sorts of rather invasive questions about my experience. So with respect, also with the idea that there should be some give and take here. So mm. okay. often... Often uh, I will recommend people, you know, suggest this themselves. You know, I can give you money. I can uh, volunteer for an organization that you are part of. I can wash your grandmother's floor. <laughs> I can do something. I can look at your poetry. Oh, no, no, not your poetry. But, yes, I can look at your poetry and... Um, <laughs> I can do something in return for you helping yeah. me. So that, I think, uh, really changes the power dynamic. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And that's, that's how I try to, that's how I try to uh, work as well. And um, I think it depends how much you know. You sort of know best, generally, like whether or not you're ready to write a character or not. So, you know, there's some cultures or or identities that um, I feel comfortable enough that I could do the I could do the groundwork or the grunt work of writing it, mm. and then I'll have someone beta read it, you know, who is or a couple of people ideally who who are of that identity, and I'll pay them um, as I would pay, you know, just like I would pay a NASA scientist if I was writing about space, and I asked them to read my book because there is a level of expertise that comes with living that that I don't yeah. have, and I you know I believe in honoring that. Um, so yeah, and then. If it's something that I really have no clue about, I would I would be very upfront with them about the fact that I'm writing a book. You know, I'd like to sit down with you and talk about how this could play out. 
both in terms of the factual information of what you know I need to know about this culture to throw in there as details and as world building and what is it that you have seen enough of or too much of as far as representations mm -hmm. go and what you know what what would you like to be different if you were to you know have an ideal way that you see yourselves in books so I can have that information and then I would have them beta read too ideally but it was something definitely where it's like be really upfront about it and then I think there's factual research and then there's sort of online research like with things like Twitter right now like mm -hmm. people are having very real and very intimate and very in-depth conversations in very public ways and you know that's real like and I don't I don't I don't recommend like just putting on your um, binoculars and like looking at it from a million miles away and pretending that you have all this distance but I do think that you can have a conversation with people you know using hashtags and using people that you know and and be very open yeah. about the fact that you want to learn and try to you know yeah. have that conversation find out what you need to know yeah it sounds like it has to be an honest trade definitely and, and a respectful and trade recognize that the history of history and the history of research is mm -hmm. very 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 violent um, <laughs> and it's 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 a very messy um, undertaking and there's a history of violence to it and you know, a lot of people who have been researched are very aware of that violence and that history. So if they're coming at you, you know, with a certain degree of animosity, that's something that you have to understand, that it's mm -hmm. not just like they're in a bad mood that day. You're walking, again, in these very precarious footsteps. Yeah. And you can be defensive about it, but your person will probably walk away from you, and rightfully so. Or you can accept it and deal with it and understand what that means and then learn as best you can. Uh, what other kinds of research do you think somebody should do? If they're, let's say, you be, you you want to write somebody who is the other, and you're at the start of that process, as as a lot of people are. I guess I guess a lot of people might think, you know, what I'm going to kind of check out Wikipedia, I'm going to go online, I'm going to do all of that sort of stuff, yeah, um, and get a view. Right. We've talked about honestly and respectfully engaging with people. Is there other things that that people can do? To start to get to grips with this, we'll definitely read books. You know, not just like books by the people, not just books about the people. Primary sources. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. I knew there was a term for that. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Do you, Nissi, and, can you do you want to expand on that a little bit? What well, sure. Um, the first thing I would say is that you should recognize, as Daniel sort of was pointing out, that you may not be welcome. Right. People, yeah. You, people may not have time for you. People may look suspiciously on your intentions. I don't know, Daniel, if you've run into this paradigm that D Diantha Sprouse put together. Diantha Sprouse is a First Nations woman that I know through Carl Brandon Society. She divided up ways of interacting with non-dominant cultures as uh, invader slash colonizer, tourist, and invited guest. And the problem is that a lot of people think they're the invited guest when they have not actually received an invitation. Invaders come in, they take what they want, they stay as long as they feel like it. Tourists give, give something in return for what they get. They have a time that they're with you and then they're gone. They have etiquette and rules that they follow. And invited guests are members of the family, basically, in a, in a temporary way. Again, they leave when it's time for them to go. Hmm. And they right. know that, that this is not their place, but that they are welcome there. And I would say that those three ways of interacting are important to know. And Yeah. 
and to, to, to figure out with the help of the people that you're interacting with which one of those you're doing right yeah absolutely uh, self-awareness is such a uh, undercurrent mm. the conversation and and I think that you know something like what Nisi just said or a lot of the stuff we've been talking about it's so easy to like go into yourself or, or think back on times when you've been one of those or the other I think most of us have been all of those things at different times and then get defensive and then try to explain yourself and be mm. like, yeah, but let me show you why and let me mm. explain. Well, actually, and all this bullshit. It's just not about that. You know, it's not about you defending yourself. It's about you figuring out how to do it right, mm. be accountable, and then tell a great story that's true on some level, you know. And so uh, I just yeah. think that's part of the process. Yeah. Uh, also, I want to say a word for uh, immersive experiences other than books and other than online research. Like, wow. uh, Tourists uh, can go to cultural festivals, you know, yeah. because that's set up to showcase a particular culture to outsiders. Or you can go to museums, you know, uh, you can try and, and sample cuisine. I know that when Sharon November was editing Nadia Okorafor's book, Akata Witch, she was like, okay, let's go get some of this soup. Okay, mm -hmm. let's eat this food because if, right. if this is happening, if this is what your characters are doing, I need to know. Mm -hmm. um, so she wasn't even writing the other, she was editing the other, but she felt that she had to have some sort of mm -hmm. sensory groundwork for what was going on there. Right. Okay, I want to come to something that I think I've seen in your writing, Daniel, a comment that you made. You may have been picking up on something else somebody said. So this person was commenting on how this issue can be seen, in terms of writing, this can be seen as a moral issue, mm -hmm. but it can also and should also be seen as a craft issue. I think I think the term they used was right. it can be a craft failure. Yeah, I mean that's a great that's a great distinction, and it's a it's I think it's a deep tension within the conversation. I personally hate the word moral, but I do know it to be a, a, a question of life and death. That uh, really is how I would frame it myself. Mm -hmm. um, because representation, it's, it's, it always gets me how, like, the same people that just want to, like, uplift, you know, the glory of storytelling and artwork and everything else, when it comes to talking about how dangerous um, bad representations are as far as, you know, racial stereotypes and, and gender stereotypes, suddenly it's just art. Or it's just a story. It's just fantasy. It's just science fiction. And mm -hmm. suddenly, like, the, the, the word has no power anymore. Um, the truth is that we, you know, we have to take the bad with the good, and the sword is very double-sided. And if art mm. can create the world, art can also destroy the world. And that's why we love it, and that's why it's dangerous and beautiful and, you know, everything else. So, like, on the one hand, it is very much about life and death. Representation very much determine our destinies in a lot of ways. And on the other hand, it's also about good writing and bad writing. And I tell people all the time, you know, we're, we're doing this work so that books and literature as a whole get better. Not mm -hmm. to, you know, guilt trip anybody. I don't have any interest in guilt tripping anybody. I have an interest in not being shown to be a demon or a clown in every book I pick up, you know, in fantasy literature or any literature. Mm -hmm. And that my kids even more so. So, you know, it's, it's both. And I think that, like, the truth is that racist cliches are exactly that. They are cliches. It's bad writing. Your character is flat. If you create a woman character who is just there to be had to be ogled at and have sex with, it's a flat character. You know, it's not good writing, period. There's no two ways about it. Now, there are great writers that have done that, and they're lesser writers because of that, and they're still great writers for other things. You know, we can, we can be complicated in our analysis, and I think we have to be, really. If we truly love something, 
we have to be able to critique it and, and see what about it is dangerous and what about it is amazing and really just uh, allow for the fullness of that to come mm -hmm. through. And that makes our work better, too. Nisi, I have nothing to add. That's <laughs> beautiful and true. Yeah, I, I stand with you on that. Okay. I think I read somewhere, if I get this wrong, I apologize, I might be misquoting you, but you said ritual is not spectacle. Mm. I think that's what you said, um, which I thought was really inter interesting and intriguing. And I wondered if you both could kind of unpack that a bit, because I think that I can I can see that as an issue that I've had in some of my writing, where I've mm. well, either I've done a kind of, oh, that's an exotic thing, let's just put plug it, or, or, or I've done a pick and mix. You know, I'll have a little bit of that yeah. Aztec thing going on, a little bit of this, and... And it, it's just, you know, right. so what's, what happened well, yeah, what that? I definitely, I see how it gets confusing um, because ritual is so often presented as spectacle. And that's a lot of people's only relationship to ritual is seeing mm -hmm. it, you know, paraded down the street or in those kind of cultural events that Nisi was talking about, you know, mm -hmm. which is fine. But when that, we have to understand, I think that that isn't, that's really the surface, you know, that's like the front of a building. And there's a huge, vast castle inside that yeah. is much more true and much more in-depth and really speaks to what's going on. Hmm. Um, and often, I think where it really gets complicated is often, like, those rituals um, have to do with, first of all, very intimate, very personal things. Second of all, oftentimes they're about surviving things like colonialism and white supremacy. And they've come up in certain ways and certain things about them are true because of that. So what you're seeing is not only just for spectacle, but it's also for survival. So there's forms of protection that happen, you know, in, in the mm. public performative aspect of it that aren't true in the private part of it, or that are true, but someone who's an outsider is going to have no concept of what that's really about and totally miss it and then represent it and blow it, you know, badly. So I think it's just sort of about humbling ourselves a little bit to the understanding that what we're seeing in the public performance may have nothing at all or very little to do with the you know, the real um, intimacy of what's going on in sacred space. Yeah, and I would just add that uh, what's going on is often something that cannot be shown. It's uh, A secret is not, this is, I got this from John Crowley, actually. A, mm. There's a difference between what people call a secret and what actually is a secret. A true secret mm. cannot be conveyed. It can only be understood. You can't uh, tell someone a secret. You can only know a secret. You can't convey mm. uh, the meanings of these, of, of particular rituals. You can only experience them. Right, right. Very well so, and then, But then you're talking about, I think you're actually talking about a second thing when you're talking about this sort of salad bar approach mm. to culture. You know, I'll have a little bit of Aztec, you know, I'll have a little bit of Nippon, you know. <laughs> and that is a, a separate issue, which when I'm talking about it with students, I'm generally saying there is sort of a backstory for any uh, cultural icon or any cultural process that you want to borrow. And what you need to do is really think about and research and examine what caused there to be, right. say, um, an exam system for the uh, civil bureaucracy of China right. and what supported that uh, because if you have just that one thing in isolation right. you have fakeness Mm. Right. No, I think that's really well put. I would totally agree with that. And because I think it's very easy to say, like, 
don't do it. 99% of the time in these conversations, no one is ever saying don't do it. Everyone is saying do it right and do it with complexity and challenge yourself mm-hmm. to do it better. And that's really what that is. And and exactly what Nisi said is that um, along with that, you know, like every mishmash of culture that we have, because most cultures at this point, you know, have quite a mishmash involved, mm-hmm. most of them are there um, because of different histories of domination and power. Often it's because of, you know, genocides and entire peoples being moved from one place to another against their will. So when we just sort of nonchalantly throw things together and are just like, oh, a little bit of that, a little bit of that cherry picking, but don't give any respect to the histories of why that might be true. Mm-hmm. Even in a fantasy realm, you know, it, it just feels sort of cheap if we're not aware that, like, there's a reason that things are mixed up. And it's a very deep and, and complex reason and often a very painful reason. And that's sort of the last thing we want to cheapen, I think, as artists. Yeah. Um, but when when we do it too quickly, that's what comes across. As a white male person, I think I've got that tension of I want to engage with this, but there's a lot of work to do. And I'm looking for not so much here's the answer, three steps and you're sorted out. Because I don't <laughs> think it's like that. But just kind of it, what's the attitude of mind? What's the attitude of heart almost that you have to bring to this to do it? And these these are the clues I'm getting, I suppose. It's it's respect, consideration, honesty, truth, authenticity, uh, those kind of things. Yeah, I would say yes, but all, those are all sort of very vague words um, that can be easily mis... You know, like mm. Trump will say that he's a very respectful person, and that doesn't make it true, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, much like much like the word diversity, I was listening to a program on gentrification this morning, and a landlord was saying gentrification is good because it diversifies poor neighborhoods, which is like yeah. a mind-boggling <laughs> reversal of the diversity that we know and and think of. But he's technically, you know, he's using diversity accurately, and when we use it to essentially just mean people of color, it it can be very problematic and yeah. simplified. Yeah. Not to say that I agree with him at all, but, you know, just that <laughs> diversity is complicated as a word, and so are a lot of the words you said. I would say the number one thing that matters in this conversation is can you listen? Are you able to truly listen to the world, to the people that are your sources and the books and everything else that you're speaking to, and to yourself? Mm. Um, and I think that if you are truly able to step back and step back from your ego, you know, step back from uh, your privilege, you can't undo your, you can't not have privilege, but step back from trying to protect your privilege and trying to, you know, be defensive about your privilege and truly listen to what's going on around you and to what your own heart is saying and what, you know, what the power dynamics are in the world outside your window. I think that is what will take you through, okay. you know, the minefield of it better than anything else. Missy, what do you think? I think um, I'm actually thinking of a word that hasn't come up that I think is relevant, and that is collaboration. Mm, yeah. Because when you're talking about writing, you're talking about doing this as an individual, but you're doing anything that you do with the backing of your community, and you get to choose a, to a certain extent which community you're asking for backing and who you're responding to. So if you're collaborating with people who are defending white male cis privilege, then that's one thing. If you're collaborating with people who want to have more inclusive fiction, that's another. Right. And you get to choose. I think I know who what you've chosen just by you having me and Daniel on this show. <laughs> well, all, all the stuff I do, I do for my own benefit. 
I have to say, to start with, because if I don't learn, how do I expect anyone else to learn? But I, I'm hoping this conversation will also be a, something of help for people, anyone really. For sure. Let's move to the, some specific things then. And I'm doing this slightly slightly tongue-in-cheek. I hope it's slightly humorous. I want to give you just some, some scenarios which I'm going to invite you to destroy, basically, I think. <laughs> uh, so here's some writing I've done. And it's a kind of, where did I go wrong? So the first scenario is this. I'll, I'll get your comments this. I had my, my black security guard and, my his, and his Hispanic sidekick in my story, and they both get zapped in chapter one. There you go. Why is that wrong? Is well, there, are they are they only the only black and Hispanic people? Oh, yeah. Up? Yeah, they all get, they get, they get red-shirted in chapter one. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's historically, you know, black and brown people are cannon fodder, both in history and in fiction. So... You're basically doing, first of all, it's predictable. Like, as soon as I read those characters and their security guards, my first guess is that they're probably going to be the first to die. And if I'm right, I'm probably going to put the book down. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cliche. <laughs> like I say, if they're, they're, if they're the only representatives, then, yeah, I'm with you, Daniel. If there's, okay. like, you know, eight more black people and, you know, eight <laughs> more Latinas and Latinos right. and, you know that I might have a little more patience. Okay. Then it's just the security guard and the sidekick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing, like when that's the that's one of the good points about like like true diversity or true multiculturalism versus tokenism is that you can yeah. get away with doing a lot a whole lot more stuff if it's not just like the one black dude in your book. Like <laughs> like Nietzsche said, you know, like if, if you have two black people, one is God and the other is Satan. It doesn't matter that you have a god, you know, a black god. You're still doing, yeah, you're still so doing I, a disservice. Okay. There's still no humans. Let me give you another one then. Um, sure. So, so I let's say I'm a bit indignant about what you've said so far, I, and so here's my <laughs> comeback to you. Uh, my, my protagonist, guys, my protagonist is a heroic female person of color who saves an island of white people. Surely hey, that's okay. I mean. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It depends. That's one of those real dependent situations. It depends. How do you do it? You know, that that could work. Maybe uh, if she don't know. If, if she takes a bullet to do it, that's a problem. And also, like, where are her people? Does she have any kids? Does she? Right. You know, yeah. does she have a grandmother? Is she just like this yeah. isolated person? Right. And what's happening on their island? <laughs> so maybe right. so. Brown, yeah, that's interesting. You know? So maybe a yeah, bit. It's that context point. thing again, and a little bit more thoughtfulness. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Does she have her own agenda? Does she have a history? But if, yeah. but I, but even with all that, I will still maintain that even if she has all those things, and you built her to be a fully realized human, and you've done all that hard work, if you kill her in the service of saving the white people, it's a problem. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't. She didn't in in this made up bit. She didn't get right. die. No. No. Any, no. That's no. Um, I'll try you. I'll try one more then for you, right. and then we'll be done with this. So. Um, I've written my book and I've perfected all these really cool dialects of all kinds of different people of color, but it doesn't work. What have I done wrong? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> there are so many things, so many ways that could go wrong, like yeah. how you represented the dialect and yeah. who else has dialect besides these characters. Right. Like, are you uh, pointing up difference by only... Um, representing one kind of speech because actually pretty much all kinds of speech are some kind of dialect. Do they talk the same way the whole time or do they code switch? So code many switch. things. What, what's code switching? Can you explain that for me? 
Oh, Daniel can. Oh, okay. <laughs> Daniel can. What did I do? What did I do? <laughs> I, I mean, most basically, it's just the the truth that people, you know, speak different ways to different folks, and not in a way that's fake at all, but just that, you know, when there's a dominant culture, which there is in the United States, which is white, um, to survive in that world, you know, requires a certain amount of, well, can require a certain amount of fitting into that norm, mm -hmm. and um, especially when it's framed as not white culture, but you know, the correct way to be or the way that you're supposed to be, right, which mm -hmm. is how white culture frames itself, um, then what you find is a lot of people who don't naturally um, speak in certain cadences and, and, and rhythms, mm -hmm. you know, trying to adjust to that in order to survive. Um, now, I think it's easy to play that in a lot of different ways, but the truth is that probably most people do it, you know, on one level or another, and in, sometimes in a very natural way. Most of the time, I think it's not even a conscious thing. Like, you, people will just slide in and out of it for whatever reason and different purposes. And I think what it's even more complex because we'll do it around friends and family in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So as much as it can be about power and survival, it can also just be about different conversations require different dialects. Mm -hmm. And if you're multilingual, not in the sense of like a full, like English and Spanish, but multilingual in the sense of you understand a lot of different ways of speaking, then depending on what you're talking about, you're going to slide in and out of whatever dialect is yeah. necessary, really. So I think if we're being honest about characters and dialect, there's a lot of slippery slidiness in a good way and a lot of fluidity around that. So, I mean, for me, voice, I'm talking about that yeah. in a kind of authorial sense, is is really important. A voice is part of integrity for, for character and all that kind of stuff. But voice in this context, voice is bound up with language, dialect. So... Uh, this is a tricky question, perhaps, but is there is there kind of advice that you can you guys can give people in an attempt to create authentic voice? How do you also authentically and respectfully create dialogue and language? I I, I mean I teach whole classes on this stuff. Right. <laughs> How long do we have to talk about this? I can I'm going to let you advertise your classes at towards the end of this, Nisi. <laughs> this is just going to be the kind of you know, this is the, the just the taster. People want to get serious about this stuff. They'll have to they'll have to dig into all kinds of other things. The, yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, it it it's the kind of thing I take an hour, an hour and a half mm. to get into because there are people who will say my characters will not deviate from the st from standard speech patterns. There are people who say uh, only stupid people can talk in this kind of dialect, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people, uh, I was collaborating with Nala Hopkinson on a story, and she really objected to having the narrative have one voice and the characters have another. She said, no, uh, that exoticizes the characters. So mm. it's it's something that you have to uh, work okay. with and work out, in my opinion. What and every think? story is going to require a different combination of mm. skills. Okay. I want to come back to something we, we talked about earlier on. So how, uh, as a writer, how do I avoid good or evil, let's say, being associated with a particular race, a particular gender, a uh, ableism or, or non that kind of stuff. How do I how do I kind of break that? Um, by having more than one or you know a multiplicity of of those people in the book, mm -hmm. basically. It, I mean that's kind of all. That's really the only way. I mean, and and by having complex characters, you know, just mm -hmm. like any other thing. Like if you if you have a character that's just a good or just an evil thing, you know, it's boring for that reason. And then on top of that, if that's representative of a particular race, it's going to be associated with that, and that brings in a whole other level. Mm -hmm. Of, of 
boringness. So it's like, you know, just like any, with any other character, if you have complex characters and if you have a multiplicity of them, you know, in theory, you should be all right. There aren't that many people out there who think, let me go out and be evil today. Right. Shirley Jackson actually had uh, one, one Ordinary Day with Peanuts. She had a great short story in which that was somebody's job to go out and be evil. But even then, it was just their job. Right. They didn't. It wasn't their identity. So, okay. yeah. Okay. I wanted to think about different dimensions now of, of otherness. I'm male, and I want to write somebody who's female, let's say. Yeah. How do I do that? Well, according to Juno Diaz, the first... Uh, <laughs> You know, the first thing to know is that you suck, and I think that that is true. Okay. <laughs> Start with that as a male writing a female. Um, but, you know, I, don't, I, I think you can do that without doing it in a way where then you don't write it. I think it means, like, approach it with humbleness yep. and approach, as I said earlier, listening. Uh, to me, like, I don't write a character until the voice clicks in my head. Ah, uh, okay. And if the voice hasn't clicked, I just don't write them, and then that's it. But then it's really a question of, it's more like, I guess I would reframe the question. If I'm starting to think through a story and then I kind of ask my imagination what the right character is for this story and whatever character shows up, then I have to decide, am I the writer enough to take on this character mm -hmm. and do whatever research is required and do whatever soul searching is required and do what I need to do? Mm -hmm. Or do I have to say no to this character and let someone else write it because it's not my story to tell and I'm not okay. there yet? Or maybe put it aside for later when I am. And then a lot of the answer to that question comes when, when you do or don't kind of feel the voice really come alive inside mm -hmm. you. And okay. then you have to make that decision, and then you have to go from there. And you may want to do some reading of other people who have attempted the same sort of thing and see what they did right and, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of pitfalls they had. Mm -hmm. right. but that's research. Yeah, I, I, I guess it is. And um, I mean, one that I, I don't think about very often, but it just comes up occasionally, it's come up recently for me, is if I'm writing somebody who's, a, who's very different in terms of age to me, so if I was a very young person writing and I'm writing an old person or a very old person writing a young, whatever, any advice on that kind of thing? Um, I've done it. Um, I have a character that's 300 years old. <laughs> so I just think it's, you know, it's a, it's, it reminds me honestly a lot of acting. Um, I think especially yeah. when it's a character who's different bodied than you in a very particular way, mm -hmm. it requires you to inhabit their body in your mind in a way that will translate them to the page. And writers aren't used to thinking a lot with our bodies um, very often because we're not trained to. Um, there is that great expression, write with your whole body, which I love. Um, but what does that really mean? You know what I mean? I think it really comes into play when you have a character who's differently abled than you or differently aged than you or just a different mm -hmm. size or whatever. You know, you have to start thinking, like, how does that change your experiential relationship to the world, whether it's just walking across the street or killing a bad guy? You know, like, it's going to be different. And the more that you can do that and inhabit that skin and that body, the better the peaceful, the more alive the peaceful mm. feel from that character's point of view. Um, and sometimes it might be like physicalized. I remember when I was a kid and I couldn't sleep, one thing that I used to do to calm myself down because I was a wild kid is I would walk to the farthest end of the house and then I would crook my back and walk as slowly as possible pretending that I was a very old man all the way across the house, up the stairs into my bed and in the process of that, I would sort of tire myself out just from, first of all, just moving so slowly, and second of all, kind of taking on mm -hmm. the tiredness of an old man, and it's a way of inhabiting the body. And your, and your mind changes, you know, according to your body very often, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I think if you take those things seriously and you really put that into practice, 
you know, even if it means like walking up to the writing desk very slowly and in the, in the, yeah. in the body of an old man or whatever that might mean. But, you know, things like that, like be playful with it. I like that. I remember I was taking acting and I was told over and over again that it was easy to get makeup and, and take on the persona of someone older and very difficult to do it for someone younger. And I think that's true for writing as well. I was trying to recall someone who had done it well. And all I kept coming up with were people who had done it horribly. Right. And I think that Part of uh, part of what can help is what you're talking about with movement and physicalizing it. Mm. But that's harder for me as a 60-year-old woman. I'm not leaping up those stairs. I can't assume right. that the, the uh, physical characteristics of someone much younger. And the language, oh, heavens. Yeah. Assuming the language is, I would advise trim it out as much as you can. Um, <laughs> Unless you're inventing your own slang of the future, don't even try to, uh, right. to write in the slang of the current days. Um, okay. If you can get someone else, a beta reader, to fill that in, fine. But if you try and do it yourself, I shudder for what will happen. <laughs> Am I right, Daniel? No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's. I think it's. I think it's. It can be done. But not if you're not spending time with actual people that are involved with it, and like true time, not just like a schedule of time. You know, I, I think it's uh, it's it, it's hard to do. I think it's harder to do than people realize, and it's harder to pull off right and know you pulled it off right than people realize for sure. I mean, it sounds again. It sounds like we're talking around that the sort of things we should be doing are similar for all of all of these challenges. You know, like when you say Daniel, when you say you know spend time with somebody to do it properly. So it's that kind of do it with respect, make a commitment to it, don't don't be superficial. It's that that deal Yeah, okay. yeah. And I think to me, I don't know, this is a process, but to me, like as I said, like if it clicks, it clicks and I know it. And I think that writers need to really like be clear on that and not do it when it doesn't click. Yeah. Um Nissi, I want to ask you a, a question, actually. Yeah. You wrote an essay called uh, Beautiful Stranger, Transracial Writing for the Sincere. And, and just the title of that intrigued me. Uh, and maybe we've alluded to some of this during this conversation. What sort of advice would you have for the sincere, for the person who is sincere in the context of, of what you were writing there? Oh, um, the title is a very, very hopeful one. Um, because it alludes not just to being sincere, but to looking up to these strangers, to not thinking that you can capture them all in this much text. Mm. Right. Um, so I guess that's my advice would to the sincere would be that you will not get it in one go. <laughs> mm. And accept that, and accept yeah. that this is a, a lifetime work. Yeah. That you will... Do it, and you will do it well, better yeah. the next time, and the next time after that. Yeah, definitely. We're coming to the close of this now, and to kind of finish off in the next few minutes. But I, I wondered if if both of you could perhaps give some encouragement. People maybe who've been listening to all this, or people engaged in this, I, mean, I was tempted to call it a struggle. It is, it is a struggle, I think, perhaps. So people who are really kind of involved with this and want to to do to engage with this, what encouragement would you give them? Um, I think this is the conversation that makes you a better writer, like by leaps and bounds, and mm. not just 
you know, not just because of the basic things that we're talking about, but in every aspect. Um, I think all the elements that we've spoken about that are um, required and as far as like thinking through writing someone who's not you are elements that make storytelling better. Whether it's character, world building, the actual craft of prose or conflict setting, they're, they're all connected and they all get stronger when you think through, when you allow yourselves to really, you know, face power directly instead of trying to skid around it or be defensive about it, the stories just get better. So, yes, it's uncomfortable, it should be uncomfortable, but as, I think if you've ever studied anything, that you, you know that that's where you're going to grow, is when mm -hmm. you're uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. sit with that discomfort, you know, step back when you need to, take time to yourself to shut up when you need to, talk to a close friend instead of going online and mouthing off sometimes when you need to, so that you're not necessarily getting like completely lambasted publicly, but go through the process you have to go through to get somewhere better for your own heart and soul and for the good of your writing because it will make your writing exponentially better. Nissi. What he said. What he said. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> I say that you will get better and that wanting to get better is part of getting better. Okay. True, 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 true. So we're gonna we're gonna finish in a minute, but I wanted to um, give each of you an opportunity just to tell tell us all a little bit about what you're working on at the moment, how people can access your work, are you appearing anywhere soon? I guess, Daniel, you, you and your band are probably appearing in New York somewhere soon, um, but um, what are you guys up to and how can people find out more about what you do? Actually, my band, I don't gig as much as it says in my bio, in, with my okay. <laughs> sadly, but let's see, what am I up to? Well, book three in the Bone Street Roomba series comes out in January, but before that I'm actually re-releasing Salsa Nocturna because um, I let it go out of print so I can self-publish it with new stories. Um, that'll be later this year, probably around October, November, I'm hoping. And that actually fits in chronologically in a series between book two and book three. So that, that's really exciting. For me, I've never self-published before. I'm looking forward to that. And then actually, I'm, I'm delving into middle grade for the first time. Um, those are okay. coming out in 2017, I think, or 18. It's going to be a minute because children's publishing is extremely slow. But yeah, I, I'm continuing to write and um, I'm speaking at the new school tonight, actually, and there's a whole bunch of events this whole week. Um, it's called the New York Teen Authors Festival or something like that. So, yeah, so I'm speaking around a lot. Um, Shadow Shaper, the paperback, comes out in September. There's a whole lot of good stuff going on. And uh, if people want to sort of check out what you're up to, have you got a website? Where do yes. people go to find out about you? Thank you for asking. I should have said it. <laughs> yes, um, DanielJoseOlder.net. Is, is my website and there's uh, the, actually my blog is up on there for my ambulance years um, which is a lot of where I learned how to write mm. is on that blog which is pretty cool to read and then it has a lot of links to my recent essays and short stories oh and I should say too I'm teaching at the Mile High MFA program which is a brand new program it's a low residency program in Colorado yeah and and it's a it's definitely the most diverse faculty I've ever seen in an MFA program mm. and it covers literary and genre and children's very freely, which is rare, unfortunately. Um, there's a lot of yeah. bias against genre, and there's yeah. a lot of whiteness in MFA programs, and this has neither. Well, it has whiteness, but it has a lot less than most places. So that's really cool, especially because it's just starting out. Um, so I'm excited. That's start, I'm starting teaching there next year. And, um, cool. yeah, a lot of good stuff I'm working on. Okay. Nissi, what about you? If um, what, what are you up to, and how can people find out about what you, what you do? Well, uh, my website is www. 
NisiShawl.com. And my first published novel, Everfair, is coming out in September from Tor Books. It ah, is, okay. Yes. Mm, I call this my Belgian Congo steampunk novel. And <laughs> yes, exactly. Because uh, when I first was introduced to steampunk, I thought, I should really like this. Why don't I? It's because of the uh, validation of colonial power structures that goes on in most steampunk. So I wanted to question that right away, and that's what mm. Everfair does. Mm. And I have a short story coming out in an anthology called Cyber World, another one coming out in an anthology called Upside Down, Inverted Tropes in Storytelling. Those are all coming out this year. And let's see, what else? There's so much going on, actually. Oh, um, it looks like I'll be going to Amsterdam in November. Nice. Oh, okay. What are you doing in Amsterdam? a conference called Other Futures. That's, cool. that's the latest thing. We'll see how that works out. Um, okay. Before we finish, is there anything else that either of you guys want to say closing comments or anything at all. I, I do teach about this stuff and uh, I don't have any online classes at the moment. Um, Tempest Bradford and I will hopefully be doing another uh, class in early June, so look for that through my website mm -hmm. and um, there will be others. So it sounds like you're quite busy then actually. Well, it sounds like you're both quite busy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good, busy. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much to both of you. Thank um, you. I do fun. appreciate your time and spending spending this hour and hour and a bit with us. Um, it's been great. And uh, wonderful, wonderful yeah. questions, by the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm glad they worked. I'm glad they they got some traction. And you know, I'm I'm really intrigued by how it's the same kinds of things that we have to do to tackle all these problems. Right. You know, like be be brave, don't hide, yeah. admit, admit the privilege, admit all the stuff. Be on it, self awareness and honesty, uh, collaboration. That word that you use, Missy. I, I think that's that's great. So yeah, thanks very much indeed to both Thank of you. you. All right, take okay. care. Bye. Bye. Bye.